0: for every gospel. It's going to show us who Christ is and what he did. And here we get to Luke chapter five. And in the first 11 verses, if you're following along in your Bible, it says Jesus calls his first disciples, the calling of the disciples that in that uh, P- he told Peter to throw his net out. It'd been a long night. They hadn't caught any fish. He said, throw your net out. And Peter, um, always wanting to instruct the Lord said, Lord, we've been doing this all night, but if you insist." And he does it. And there's this miracle of all this fish. And from then on, Jesus said, you won't be catching fish anymore. You'll be catching men. That he gives them this miracle and then this mission that Jesus is more than a carpenter. And then in the second section there, 12 through 16, he cleanses a leper, a defiled person. He goes to this person and he doesn't just say you are clean. But the emphasis on that paragraph is that he touches him. So much so that that leper goes out and he becomes popular. In 17 through 26, there's the cursing of the paralytic. Here's where Jesus discerns the hearts of the Pharisees. Though they never speak, he said, why do you say in your heart? And the emphasis here is on his talk. So not only does he touch the leper, but he talks to the paralytic and he says, rise, you may walk. And then they argue with him and he says, I went from the lesser to the greater, that I can, I can make somebody walk, but the greater miracle is to forgive them of their sins. And the chapter ends with a question about fasting. Why do your disciples fast, not fast? Why do they feast? And he tells them a parable, I'm bringing something new. So we're going to concentrate on Luke five twenty-seven through 32, seeing that Jesus touches the untouchable. He knows the unknowable. He forgives the unforgivable. And here he's going to dine, dine, literally eat with the despicable. So this is the call of Levi, and then you're going to see what Levi does. This is a great paragraph for you dailies to memorize and teach to your youngest son, Levi. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. What a great sentence. He said to him, follow me. Last week, we introduced the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. And here he goes. And notice what it does. After this, after all these things, after his teaching, after his healing, after cleansing a lobster, after talking to a paralytic and and raising him and letting him walk again, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector. He saw the most despicable people in the world. He saw them and he said to him, follow me. He came to his own in general, but don't miss this. He calls people individually. He goes to each and every one of us and he calls us. He may come in general, but he calls us individually. He saw Levi. The the description behind that word is he was intent on going after this one man. Let me give you an illustration. Yesterday, we went to pick up a certain person from Idrahaji. And I went there in general, just loving the fact that this is a Christian camp and there's lots of kids. And when you get there, you see them running around. But I went for one person. Glad to see everybody else, but I went for one person. And when I got there, I was looking for one person. So it is with Jesus. When he comes. He seeks individuals. He went to the woman at the well. He called Zacchaeus down from a tree. Jesus is in the business of the personal call. He's not a general savior. And this should affect how we view the cross. And it should affect how we view our conversion. That it is personal, not general. That the cross is purposeful. It's not conditional. And then we see what Levi did. Another great verse, great memory verse, Luke five twenty eight, and leaving everything. He left everything. He left everything. Question, have you left everything? Have you and I left everything? Do we believe that we are new creation? Behold, new things have come. What idols might we still carry around that weigh us down? That the author of Hebrews says, cast aside those idols that weigh you down. Do I and do you, do we recognize that Jesus is more satisfying than anything the world can offer? Levi left his lucrative business to follow Christ. Now, leaving everything, if you'll flip back to Luke 3, doesn't necessarily mean you have to quit your job. Look at Luke 3, starting in verse 10. John the Baptist came, and he's preparing the way for Jesus, and he's calling them to repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the crowd say to him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So he didn't tell them necessarily to leave their job. He's just saying, do your job to the glory of God. Soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and by be content with your wages. One study Bible says, John the Baptist does not say that working for the Roman government or serving as a soldier is itself morally wrong, but he insists that God expects upright conduct from his people. What's the point? We may not be called to leave our jobs. We may not be called to leave our city. But we are called to leave everything. Everything. Not most everything. Not some things. Everything. Levi left everything. And there's a great ending to this. Jesus promised those who have left father and mother and... Everything to follow me shall receive an abundant crop. But that promise comes in the future. That promise comes for some of us, for many of us, maybe a long time from now. There are some of you in this room who've been walking with Jesus, what seems like forever. There are some of you that may be walking for Jesus that seems like a year. Do you and I get this, that that promise comes later? We leave everything now, And we follow Christ, knowing sometime in the future he will keep his promise. Oh, Orville Redenbacher's gourmet popping corn can pop in three minutes. But for you and I, it may take 30 years. 30 years to take out of our hearts all those things, all those idols, to craft us and to mold us and to shape us to fit into his presence. And leaving everything everything. The cost of discipleship is high, but it's worth it. Jesus is worth the sacrifice. The cost of discipleship, of following Christ, to become a learner of Christ, a lifelong learner of Jesus is high. I say that to you with all love and all, it's high. It is not easy Following Christ doesn't mean you can bow your knee, you confess your sin, and then everything's going to work out. There'll be money in the bank. There'll never be another sickness. All is going to be well. Following Christ means we leave everything. For some of us, we have to leave our jobs. For other of us, we don't. For some of us, we have to literally separate ourselves from our friends. For other of us, we don't. For some of us, we have to leave literally everything. For all of us, we have to mentally make Christ Jesus a priority in everything. Can I still run, golf, bike, do whatever hobby? Absolutely. But you do it for the glory of God. Do I have? Can I still work in this industry and do that? Absolutely. But you do it for the glory of God. We leave everything. We don't say... I don't, you know, I'm going to give him everything, but when I'm driving, it's, you know, I mean, you just kind of go with the signs. No, um, your right foot is converted when you're converted. And so let us reorient our lives daily and run after our Redeemer faithfully and let's travel light. He left everything and he rose. And he rose. That word is the same word used in the resurrection. What a picture. Leaving everything, he arose. It was a new birth for Levi. He was up and he was moving. He had left everything, he was following Jesus. And he followed him. He left everything, he arose, and he followed him. And this isn't just Levi, this is common to all. Look back at Luke 5:11. Jesus performs this miracle. Peter says, I am a sinful man. Depart from me. Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. It's the same call for all. We must go after Jesus. We must follow him with everything we have. Amen? And we must invite others to do the same. If you're following on the handout... That's the, that's the main point for today. Follow Christ, invite others to do the same. Well, how? Well, let's look what Levi did. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So here you have people around the table. You have tax collectors. You have others, which later on the Pharisees will describe as sinners. You have the disciples. You have Jesus and Levi, who opens up his home with hospitality, who opens up his kitchen table to the unholy. It would be like us inviting the town outsiders, may I even say scoundrels, into our home. It's something that many wouldn't be comfortable with, but this is what Levi did. He just went to the people he worked with and he said, I met Jesus. He said, follow me and I'm following him and I just want you to know about him. This guy so radically changed my life. Why don't you come over to my house? And notice what it says there. He didn't say come over to my house for hors d'oeuvres. It says a great feast, literally a banquet. He has the spread. I mean, he's got everything, everything, even boulder chips. I mean, he's got them all there and they're good. And he went and he has this feast for Jesus. He invites his friends, scoundrels, tax collectors and sinners. And then some people hear about it. Now, there's some discussion where the Pharisees at this party. Well, they were always wanting to keep themselves holy and separate from these things. So they may have heard about the party. Nonetheless, they show up and they say in verse 30. With their scribes, They grumble at his disciples. They grumble at his disciples. Just want to make you, if you back up one verse in 29 there, says that they were reclining at table. Uh, We've had some discussions. What does at table mean? Why did, I mean, did the ESV miss it by leaving out the, at the table? I mean, that makes more sense. And so we researched it. And the English Standard Version was was, uh, written or edited by J.I. Packer, who is from Great Britain. And so we researched it. And we found out that at table is an English uh, idiom to talk about not just the place, but the, the, the state. You're eating together. You're fellowshipping with one another. You're around with your companions. At the table means literally at the place. So I'm at the pulpit, literally, but I'm at pulpit, right? I'm in the state of being of preaching. That's the idea here. And so they are at the table. The Pharisees and their scribes hear about this. And here's what they do. Goguzu. You can say it with me. Goguzu. Say it. Goguzu. 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 And that's the reason the Greek word is there. It sounds like what we translate it. The Pharisees and their scribes, they grumbled. They grumbled. The Greek definition of this is wonderful. It means to murmur, to coo like a dove, to discontentedly complain. Goguzu. The English, it's like an onomatopoeia. It's like that formation of the word buzz or murmur. These guys show up and they go, Guzu, what are you doing? Eating with these tax collectors. And notice what they say. They don't say others. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Last week we looked at that verse. The son of man came eating and drinking and he was called a glutton and a drunkard. And they say, why, why are you eating and drinking with these tax collectors and sinners? These despicable people. Why are you associating with them? This was a strong complaint. This word, this idea of grumbling, it's only used in Luke when he is associating with the, those outside the Jewish faith. Why are you doing this? Why are you fellowshipping? Why are you doing life with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want to just destroy this idea that there's no such thing as a bad question. That's just not true. Satan did it in the garden. Did, did God really say? Did, did he really say that? Can you see Satan slithering up just doing that? Did, did God really say you're not to eat of that tree? a bad question. And so not all questions are good if they're asked with wrong motives. The Pharisees follow in Satan's ways. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What they're saying is these dinner guests are despicable. They're unworthy of association. And you, and notice who they went to, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples. They wouldn't even go to Jesus. They're over here talking to his disciples and say, you eat with these people? And I love the answer here. Now, the disciples, probably on the backs of their heels, what do we do? And Jesus steps in, overhears the conversation and answered them. So they go to his disciples. Jesus steps in and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus, when working with Pharisees and self-righteous and super-religious people, would often give a, a picture and then he'd give his principle. He would teach them in pictures so that they would understand and indirectly get to their heart. And he surfaces it in 31. Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. And so we have the doctor, we have the healthy, and we have the sick. Levi's having the good doctor over for dinner. And then he gives them the principle. I the good doctor, have not come to call the righteous, that is the healthy, but sinners to repentance. And so he takes their question, turns right around and give, and shows them just who they are. I've not come to call the righteous. And by the way, if you were to go read Romans 9, and, or actually Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Paul quoting... Psalm 14 Psalm 52 which the Pharisees would have known but I've called to come to I've come to call sinners Levi Peter all the people at Levi's table and you to repentance the sick we are the sick before we know Christ we are the sick All people, Jew and Gentile. So this is what he's saying. I'll touch a leper. I'll talk to a paralytic. Everybody needs me. This is Jesus' words. I, notice who he's putting the responsibility on. I have not come. He didn't point to the Father. He pointed to himself. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That all of us are sinners. All of us, need Jesus. All of us need to repent. Some of us have done that. That now through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ lives within us. We have bowed the knee. We have submitted our lives. We've left everything and we followed him. And when you hear the name Jesus, you say to yourself, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Do you remember that hymn? It's a good one. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes a wounded spirit whole and calms a troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Dear name the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place. My never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king, my Lord, my life, my way, my end, accept this praise I bring. And we're still sinners, amen? That we still need to repent daily because that song goes on and says, weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Till then I would thy love proclaim with every fleeting breath. And may the music of thy name refresh my soul in death. How sweet the name of Jesus, written by uh, John Newton. That we are, we are, as the Latin term once said, as we are simile, Uh, Justice et Peccator, which Martin Luther said, at the same time, we are justified and we are sinners. That Levi could follow Christ, rise up, leave everything, rise up and follow Christ. And Levi knows, I got to tell my buddies about this because Jesus just came into my life and they need to hear about him. But I don't think Levi, I don't think Peter, I don't think Paul ever got over the fact that they were saved by grace. Grace. By grace. In fact, if we follow Paul's life, you've heard me say it before. He said, I'm the least of the apostles, the least of the saints. And he ends his life in 2 Timothy saying, I'm the chief of sinners. That as he went on in his Christian life, he saw himself for who he really was. And he saw Jesus for who he really was. And that cross was just magnified in his life. Luther, when he nailed his 95 Theses, and all of us would congratulate him on that, because we are Protestants and of the Reformation, his first thesis was we should live lives of daily repentance. Lives of daily repentance. That repentance isn't a one time event. That I have not come to call the righteous, but I've called to come sinners to repentance. And in Jesus, right now, we are both righteous and sinful. Positionally, we are righteous. If I were to die right now at pulpit, (laughs) that's funny. If I were to die right now at pulpit, I would go straight to heaven and be with Jesus because positionally, I am righteous before him. Progressively, I'm working that out every day. And when I sin every day, I should repent. Amen. That's understanding the gospel. It's not just a one-time act. It's not fire insurance for the future. It is an all-consuming, overwhelming understanding of who I am, who Jesus is, and what God did for me. I want to read you just a few sentences of a very powerful article that if you understand these concepts, you will understand exactly what Jesus says here that he is called to come the sinners to repentance. And when we do that, we become righteous. It's by Dane Ortland. He's with Crossway Publishing. He says, I'm learning that the more I see the gospel, the more I see how little I see it. For every inch gained in gospel understanding, I gain a foot in seeing how little I grasp it. I peer over the edge of grace and see a new hundred foot drop which enables me to see also that the cliff extends another mile beyond that. For those of us who live near Moab, we see that. You go to Moab and you think you're running or riding or hiking, and you get to the edge, I'm almost there, and you're like, whoa, I've got to slow down because that's a big drop, and wow, that goes on for a mighty long time. That's what he's saying As I get to one where I think I understand the gospel, and I go, whoa, it's much bigger. There's an entire psychological substructure that due to the fall is a near constant emission of relational leveraging, fear-stuffing, nervousness, score-keeping, neurotic controlling, anxiety-festering silliness that is not something I say or even think so much as I breathe. That he's saying there's something around us and it's not the gospel. It's the world we live in. It's just silliness that we breathe. You can smell it on people, though some of us are good at hiding it. And I'm seeing more and more, bit by bit, that if I trace this fountain of scurrying haste in all its manifestations, down to the root, you don't find childhood difficulties or Myers-Briggs diagnosis or Freudian impulses. You find gospel deficit. All the worry and dysfunction and resentment that is the natural fruit of living in a mental universe of law The gospel really is what it brings to rest. Wholeness, flourishing, peace. And for those brief moments, those gospel-saying moments, when it settles on you, for that moment, you really, truly understand that nothing can touch you. When you're in Christ, nothing can touch you. That he is learning as well as I am learning to live out practically where I am positionally. Justified, yet sinful. Jesus came to justify the sinner as they repent. And we are to repent. That means we are to change our mind. That means we are to do a 180. That if I'm walking down this road and somebody says, you are to repent of your walking, I would literally do a 180 and go that direction. It would be like if I were trying to draw a few weeks drive a few weeks back to the fire that was up over there, right? I'm trying to go to the fire and law enforcement would say, no, you must repent of your driving. You must turn around because I don't want you to go there because that's dangerous and you could die. It would turn me around. That's what we're to do with our friends, tax collectors and sinners and anybody that wants to dine around our table, we must call them and say, you're heading down a wrong direction. And if you go there, you could get burned to a crisp. You need to turn. You need to turn. And so that is what we're called to do as believers. We're called to, to, to two things, really. Follow Christ, invite others to do the same. That's the call of Levi. Levi, Follow Christ, leave everything Follow Christ, invite others to do the same. And at the bottom of your handout, you see those questions in the to-go box. That knowing some people are called to remain where they are, what does leaving everything look like in your life? What what does that look like? And have you left everything? And and would you, sitting around the table today, discuss that? Have I left everything? According to verse 29 of Luke 5, what, what is one kind of person we should have around our tables? Who, who should we have around our tables? When could you have them over? It's just a pointed question. Maybe sometime before this series. That's really small. Third one: What was the Pharisees' problem? What what didn't the Pharisees see in light of John nine forty one? Finally, who's the physician? Who are the sick? And what does Jesus extend to all who eat with him? Everybody needs the gospel. Jew, Gentile, Tax Collector, Center, uh, Man, Woman, Texan, Coloradan, all of us. We all need it. Everyone needs the gospel all the time. For some of you, school begins in a couple weeks. Sorry to tell you that. I'm just don't shoot the messenger. It just begins. Some of us will not begin school in a couple of weeks. But none of us in here ever graduates from the school of grace. That is the gospel. The same guy, John Newton, who wrote How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, on his deathbed, his dying words, he said, You know, my memory is failing, it's failing me. But two things I remember. I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Father, if there 's anyone in here today who has never responded to the call of Christ, I pray that they would like Levi leave everything, rise up, and follow your Son Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would put upon our hearts people in our lives we know need to hear the good news that Christ came and died for sin and rose again, and you would bring them to mind and You might even bring the desire to have them over to eat with us to mind. Father, help us, enable us, give us the strength to follow you every day, to repent when we need to repent, and to invite others to do the same. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.